this is the meat of the podcast. <laughs> have you ever have you ever caught your have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? <laughs> This shit feel like I won't ever make it home Graphics back though, I got to get off of this road Hi, this is Smith. Before we play this episode, I wanted to warn that the audio quality on it isn't great. It's because we recorded it before we got good recording equipment. Uh, We're including it anyway because the content is important and we want people to listen. And I'm Lily, and I live in St. Petersburg, Russia. On today's episode, we talk about customer service in Russia, Alexei Navalny, and at the end, we talk a little bit about how to have a proper bowel movement. And I can't tell, like, it's just something that I felt was Russian for some reason, just the type of service, that, like, type of interaction in specifically in a service-oriented situation, where actually, like, I have a lot of good service experiences in Russia, and a lot of them or in Petersburg, and a lot of them break the stereotypes that Russia has about customer service. The like, quality of customer service has overall in this city has changed really noticeably in the like, three years that I've been here, which is kind of crazy. Wait, in, in what way? People are much more polite in more places. It's Why like, is that? Do you know? I think it's just the like Western standard of customer service creeping in. I'm not familiar with like the Russian stereotype about customer service. Okay. The stereotype of people, you're probably familiar with the stereotype of Russians being like cold and unfriendly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So part of that stereotype is also that in service situations, like in stores and restaurants, that the people who are working that are generally supposed to, you know, serve you and the customer's always right, that whole phrase, right? That just like isn't a thing or wasn't a thing here at all. Okay. It's like accurate in that other Russians would be like, yeah, that's true. That's how people like it is a rude coldness or they didn't interpret it as a coldness. I think people would definitely, if you pointed that out to them, they would say, oh, yeah, that happens in a lot of places. And yeah, some people, especially if they've traveled outside of Russia and seen the difference, would agree and be like, yeah, totally. Like they might say like, oh, they're not necessarily being mean. That's just like they're not trained to to be like super polite. Maybe people would defend it that way, but they would notice it. Yeah, they would be like, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about and it's still very much a thing like in some little or you know little grocery stores or like (laughs) on the bus but basically like i'm not saying all the time they're definitely nice older ladies but a lot of places where like the babushki kind of are the ones who run the show like for example buses the person who collects money theaters the person who sells tickets like Mm -hmm. it's always these old ladies and they could be like super I don't know. I mean, it feels rude, but basically like, just like completely cold. uncharmed by your presence. And yeah, everything. or like, or it doesn't, it's not always old ladies, but yeah, like recently I went into a store right below my house and the cashier, she was like sitting near the cash register, like kind of like slumped to one side, her chin in her hand kind of, and I buying my thing, whatever it was, and she just like, I was annoying her by trying to buy something and and she was also like pissed at me not just annoyed but like actively angry she was just she was just like 
hi or maybe didn't even say hi and like I asked for a bag and she kind of just like grabbed it like slammed it at me (laughs) does it kind of hurt your feelings still like are you you still kind of feel bad after you no no I got I got over it it used to oh just I wanted to just add this other aspect of of like the history of this cold ruthlessness where's Ruth That's not my joke, but I really wish it was. Whose joke is it? Do you know what Fireside Theater is? Radio guys. Radio, yeah. yeah. In the 60s. Yeah, Yeah, it's their joke. That's cute. Yeah, God, they have so many good puns. Something from my childhood. Okay, so the history of that is partly because during the Soviet Union, people who worked in stores, so specifically like taking that example, they genuinely had access to more products than the people who bought things in the stores. Oh, the other detail is that a lot of times stores were set up so that, or maybe all of the stores in the Soviet Union were set up so that the person, the cashier is standing there behind a counter and everything is behind them. You you can't put your little grubby hands on anything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Grubby hands off. You have to interact and they can, you know, they do it for you. They go and get the thing. It's still that way in some stores here, in some in some grocery stores, and it's like that in all pharmacies. So, like, when you go into a pharmacy, even if you just want a normal, not medicine with a prescription or anything, you just want, like, chapstick, cough syrup, condoms, you have to interact with someone to do that. You have to ask them. That embarrassed me in the beginning. <laughs> you mean specifically condoms or any time you had to talk to somebody? Any time... Because I was, like, not confident about it. I just wanted to get the thing and have, like, a small interaction as possible. I mean, I'm talking when I first came. In general, interactions were hard. I distinctly remember in my first couple months, I needed a Band-Aid. And I had no fucking idea how to say Band-Aid. And I I was, like, walking. I mean, I, I couldn't. I didn't have a smartphone. Like, this is 2012. Somehow I didn't have a smartphone. Yeah, I went into, like, pharmacy. And I was just, like gesticulating wildly (laughs) no it wasn't that hard I was just like pointing to my needy needy finger or whatever it was and like thing that put on (laughs) but but that was the kind of thing where like I would have liked to just go into the store and like search around myself for the band-aids and fucking buy them you know what I mean rather than suffer that comes out of the Soviet era thing. There's remnants of that, but basically that concept where there's a cashier who's controlling everything and who has actually has access to more stuff that they're selling. That's like the privilege of being an employee of, of a shop. There was a, definitely a sense of like the cashiers on some kind of high horse. When you walk into the store, there's like a weird type of dynamic or was a weird dynamic where you're just a little shit. And I own everything. I'm kind of like the king of this castle shop. Right. Basically, my my friend's mom, who I'm staying with right now, she was telling me about that vibe of stores. How people would just be, like treat you like a, like dirt. And huh. so now they've they've fallen from their throne, but they still like retain some of the old glory. Probably, it's not consciously retaining any glory. It's just that was an interaction that you had. That's the dynamic. Switching gears here into politiki. That's politics. For those of you who don't know, we want to talk... For, for Grace, you mean? 
guys. Hey, guys. <laughs> We're going to talk a bit about the most prominent figure in opposition politics right now in Russia, Alexei Navalny. I would appreciate it if you would summarize him. I think the main things that people need to know about him is that he started off as a real estate lawyer and then around starting around 2006 and then getting more famous in 2008 he had a blog on live journal uh, where he pretty much would expose corruption in large russian companies that were often specifically tied to the russian government either formally or through personal relationships with putin and so he he got famous around that time and i think in 2008 there were several protests around the documents that he had released on his blog and at the time i think he was still working as a real estate lawyer and and one of the tactics he took which was sort of cool is he bought small amounts of stock in a lot of the foremost Mm -hmm. russian companies so that he could be like a minority shareholder and force those companies to reveal documents that they otherwise wouldn't want to so that was around 2008 and i actually read an article that was written around that time and it was still talking about him very much as like not really a political figure but more just like this guy who has a blog whose like main platform is anti-corruption and then I think gearing up you know he's gaining like a relatively big following through this blog he starts a few more different websites for tracking like different governmental activities and then around the 2000 were the elections in 2011 2012 okay well the 2011 2012 presidential elections in which organized and led like a a lot of protests following those elections. And Navalny's relationship with political parties has like been pretty, like it's not stable. So he'll, he'll be the leader of like one political party he starts and then he'll have a partnership with another political party. But in general, he's seen as a liberal, more progressive figure who focuses primarily if not almost solely on like financial justice and the economy in Russia. He seems less concerned with uh, sort of like international affairs, although in recent years, because he's trying to be more of this political figure, he's like found himself commenting on things like Crimea and Syria more. So after the 2000 elections, he led a series of protests, as I said. And then in 2013, he ran for mayor of Moscow. That was particularly important because up until then, mayors had been appointed by Putin. And the current mayor of Moscow had said, like, hey, let's have an election. And Navalny ran as the opponent. And he got more votes than was expected, though he didn't win. And at the same time that he was running for mayor, the Russian government indicted him on like accusations of embezzlement. Mm-hmm. from the time when he had been a real estate lawyer. And so he was like undergoing this trial in 2013 while he was trying to run for mayor of Moscow. And eventually the charges were dismissed because the European Human Rights Court was basically like, this is like a miscarriage of justice and you have to let him go, which was sort of surprising to me that like the European courts could just come in and say this and Russia would pay attention. But there were a lot of protests around that time in favor of Navalny. And so I guess the Russian government felt pressure to let him go. So at that time, he was he was sentenced to five years in prison. He spent a night in prison and then the next day they let him go home. So Mm -hmm. that was in 2013. And then the most sort of recent 
event that I think we should touch on is that in March, he released a series of documents showing like shadowy nonprofit organization used to like disperse wealth amongst the Russian elites, specifically targeting the current prime minister, Dmitry Medvedev, is that mm-hmm. how his last mm-hmm. name? And there was an, another series of protests around that. So like basically just a month and a half ago. And at this time, he's been retried for that, like the same exact charges as he was in 2013. And the court handed down a suspended sentence of five years, which I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I assume it just means like, okay, we're finding you guilty and we're giving you five years in prison, but you don't actually have to go. Along with that, he's, you know, ramping up to be like, I'm going to run in 2018 for the presidential elections. What our method was here is that you read stuff about Navalny in English, duh, and from different sources and tried to collect and understand not only the sort of timeline or biography, but how he's portrayed, right? Yeah. In English speaking, probably mostly Western media is what you looked at. And my goal was to look at Russian media, both state-sponsored and independent about Navalny and try to understand the same thing, like how he's portrayed. One thing that I want to comment on from your timeline is that it's pretty clear that those embezzlement charges are are totally fraudulent. Well, okay. They always coincide with him trying to like run for a particular office or when he releases a set of documents that are unfavorable to a certain set of people. Across the publications that I looked at, the coverage of Navalny is like pretty underdeveloped. Like I was trying to find a profile or like a full essay on him sort of describing his role in like Russian politics and culture and like having some sort of nuanced opinion on who he is and like what his role is and I wasn't really able to find that for the most part the articles I read were either sort of sparser timeline of the one I just said or worse uh, like very short articles about specific events that had happened so for example he was recently I forget what the there's a word for it what's it what's that antiseptic called that green Zelionka, I think Zelionka, yeah basically opponents to Navalny will throw this green stained antiseptic at him and it basically like stains your face and he had it all over his hands and stuff mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. those are what the articles will be about it'll be like oh Navalny the the opposition leader was stained with this antiseptic or like Navalny is claiming that this antiseptic had some sort of poison in it that damaged his eye and he's going to need to go like to a doctor in a different European country to be treated those sorts of things mm-hmm. and there was nothing that was like a comprehensive look at who he is or like what his deal is in general I would say the most comprehensive thing I consumed was a video that was a BBC interview from earlier this year like right before Trump's inauguration I think it was like or it was the day of Trump's inauguration like January 20th where somebody was just sitting down with him and asking him a bunch of questions and he was able to respond to those but I wasn't able to get like a a full sense of him from like and I probably read you know 15 articles damn it's called brilliant green i'm getting as a translation is that right oh brilliant green yeah that might be either there was another word but we should definitely put a 
link to the picture because it's like pretty absurd looking like he has this picture of himself and his entire face is like this really intense teal aquamarine mm-hmm. color and his hands are covered and stuff too and it is supposed to be non-toxic it's just an antiseptic but apparently the most recent attack he's claiming had some sort of poison thing in it well his um, eye was burned and like he came on then he came burned, on his yeah. his tv channel that he has okay youtube channel with an eye patch like a pirate yeah in any case his eye was burned and that whole drama about him getting needing to go to a doctor in switzerland or wherever that was also covered in the news here but in any case i totally hear what you're saying there's not a very comprehensive analysis of him except for i will say the only thing more nuanced about him that i've read is a masha gessen or a couple of masha gessen pieces in the new yorker i wanted to clarify some things from your timeline one thing that you you said was that recently the, the last protests that were directly connected to navalny were following the release, you called it a release of documents about Medvedev and his corrupt lifestyle. Just one important thing to note, Navalny runs, like the thing he's quite famous for now is that he runs a organization that's, I don't know, crowdfunded apparently, very volunteer heavy, called the Fund of Wait, how do I? This is going to be another great translation by Lily. <laughs> the fund of the battle with corruption, or like the battle with corruption fund. Maybe a okay. better way to say it. Uh, okay. The struggle, maybe struggle is a better struggle with corruption fund. And that group, that organization, they have an uh, office space that they rent out in Moscow. And their deal is they collect public information. They do research with publicly available information. They just are like the only ones who actually look at it on corruption in the Russian government. It's not about really releasing documents. Those documents are, again, like publicly available. Okay. It's a similar thing to what he did when he bought shares in different companies. Yeah, that was that's a really interesting move. And good that you pointed that out because it's a similar tactic. He takes public information. He has a team of researchers... And what they do, what they've done a couple of times, is release these documentary films that profile a certain member of the Russian government and like profile their corruption. I know of two of these movies, and I watched the last one. The last one that came out was about Medvedev. It's called On Vamni Dimon. It's translated as, he is not Dimon to you. Uh, oh, yeah. I kept seeing that, and I don't know what Dimon means. It's the nickname of Dmitry, Dmitry Medvedev. It's like okay, so like he's saying like he's not a friend to you. He's not. Yeah, you can't basically. use his nickname. He's not good to you. Yeah, okay. And I think it's actually a quote from some TV personality. But in any case, currently looking at the YouTube channel, so Alexei Navalny has his own YouTube channel. That's where he came on with his little pirate eye thing recently. Twenty million seven hundred thousand views. It is a fifty-minute movie. I watched it. It's oh, I see now what they're called in English: the Anti-Corruption Foundation. <laughs> what did I call it? The struggle with corruption <laughs> the, the, fund. The battle against corruption. <laughs> also, I, said I think that's better. The battle against corruption fund. <laughs> Sorry, I meant foundation. It's just it's confusing. It's fond. I thought it was one of those like words that's secretly English. They just put it in Russian letters. A lot of views, right? And. It's done really well. It's like pretty well produced, makes it pleasant to watch. He's interviewed in parts of it. There's lots of nice, like, what do you call that sort of animation drawing? There's a live person on camera and then there's like little arrows that like swoop around. Like there's just, it's well done, basically. It's well produced. Wait, can you describe the mood of it? Is it like ominous music playing and those sorts of things? Or is it very just like direct? No, it's super direct and frank. The content is, is amazingly 
obscene, basically, which is the extent of Medvedev's wealth. And this is something he points out is that this is not specific to Medvedev. Like Putin is also also has a similar crazy kingdom, secretive one. There's like a satisfying detective aspect of this type of movie because what he does is he's basically like, okay, so we're going to show you, you know, like how corrupt Medvedev is, right? And he starts by sort of introducing different figures in this crazy circle of corruption and wealth because the deal is there's all these as you said like charitable foundations right yeah they use like non-profits to obscure the money right so there's a handful of people i think under 10 that are covered in this movie and you know they like show how each person is connected literally show lines drawing them like he builds this little like web and each chapter in the movie is like a new part of the web is exposed and at each point in this web or network or whatever there's one of those foundations a couple of them are led by one person you know there's a lot of like overlapping but again he's getting all this information from public sources there's a little bit of really funny kind of like detective work where they look at like instagram photos of medvedev uh, and they're like see this lamppost like his... oh my god yeah like they like see this lamppost that's the same lamppost as the one that we took aerial photos of in sochi and let's show you the structure of the movie is that like each chapter is showing a new part of the corrupt network but also it's showing like a different crazy mansion estate home that Medvedev owns or like a vineyard somewhere in Italy and they do these like aerial shots that I guess they went and got somehow I think I read that with drones yeah yeah, when Navalny's being interviewed, the parts where you see Navalny, behind him is a row of bookshelves. You see the drone, <laughs> and you see two little rubber duckies perched on some of the books. So at the protests that happened, anti-corruption protests in March, that were like definitely anti-Medvedev, a lot of the chants were about Medvedev particularly, and were following this the release of this film, a lot of people had posters with ducks on them. And the duck thing is this little inside joke among Navalny supporters, which is that like somehow it came out in some research that Medvedev built like a little home for the ducks in his pond, in one of his <laughs> mansions. And so it's sort of just like a symbol of the excess, the like decadence of his life that even his ducks have a home. Um, <laughs> so the rubber duckies behind him are definitely not accidental. Can you take some time and describe when Navalny releases a new video, like, what is the response? So the, the video On Vamni Dimon was published on March 2nd, and the protests against corruption, as they're referred to, or anti-Medvedev or anti-government, whatever you want to call them, or pro-Navalny, that protest was on March 26th, and it, was, it took place in almost 100 cities around Russia. It was very, very widespread. So, okay, this is apropos of the fact that I'm remembering that I did not go to those protests in Petersburg because I was moving that day. I remember talking to my friend about it after, and she but didn't yeah, go she, for more thought through reason. Like, she didn't want to Which was what? Okay, which was... She feels very skeptical about this Navalny figure. The point I wanted to make was that she and I were chatting about him, and his movie came up. Maybe I had seen something about the video, but I didn't watch it until after the protests. But it already had, like, a significant number of views then, millions. I got the feeling that this was something pretty widespread. He's, again, he's like very famous. Everyone knows who he is. He's like the only famous opposition politician right now. Can we pause for a second and like talk about this calling him a politician? 
two things. The first thing I noticed was that as time went on from like 2008 to present day, the articles about him shifted from talking about him as like this lawyer who blogs to calling him an activist to calling him the like foremost leader of the opposition party. And and to be fair, he has been like the leader of organized political parties in Russia, but he hasn't actually ever been elected to any office. And because what I perceive as him focusing almost solely on corruption and the economy and like very little on social issues, very little on international diplomacy. He doesn't seem to me to be a politician. Like to me, he seems more like a activist and some sort of like public figure, but it almost seems inaccurate to call him a politician. Well, I think that he really cultivates that image that you just described. He's standing when he's being interviewed in this movie. I'm looking at a shot of it right now with the the bookshelves behind him with the rubber duckies and the drone. He's got his sleeves rolled up. He's wearing a shirt and tie. I feel like he has this image very much consciously of yeah, I'm just a lawyer who's rolling up my sleeves and getting my hands dirty in this publicly available information and presenting it to all of you. And well, fuck, if I need to, I'm going to fucking run for president. That's his vibe. It feels like more he's like a politician symbolically rather than in practice. He's definitely an outsider if you want to like look at it with that framework um, in terms of the pol- politicians. And that's sort of the point. He's like, look at this corrupt circle of horror that is occurring. I'm outside of it. Let's like take this into our own hands, like we the people kind of stuff. Yeah, but I totally see what you're saying. I think it's a good point. He's definitely not like a typical politician, but that that's also his that's his image and he's using that, like Trump used it. Not trying to compare them, but I'm just saying the insider outsider thing. When Navalny like first came on the scene in any sort of political sense around 2008, he was associated or part of parties that were very nationalistic in nature. And so yeah. he has made a lot of comments about Georgians. He would speak at nationalistic rallies, et cetera, et cetera. As he got more famous, he sort of started to shy away from that. So his original base was more like nationalistic followers than with the like rise of him as this sort of like anti-corruption figure. He got a lot of support from like sort of lower level bankers and people that had invested in the stock market that weren't within like Putin's inner circle and therefore were being disadvantaged by the activities of people who were engaging in corruption practices. So that was like his second wave of support, maybe around like the 2011 election. And then as time has gone on, he's sort of... He's getting mainstream ma- support. He's, he's getting mainstream, but he's sort of amassed this base of young liberals. So like mm-hmm. young middle-class liberals, I think in general, from what I read, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds tend to still support Putin. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty accurate portrayal of the development of his persona. Yeah, and I think it's really important to to point out that he definitely has a history of being nationalistic, specifically towards Central Asian countries. Okay, so what you just described, you found by reading the articles you were reading. 
is this just that you're saying this is the th different things that are being covered at different times? Like now they're covering the green stuff and the protests and forgetting about the nationalism? There was one article I found from like some place called like globalvoices.org or something that traced his like kind of quote unquote falling out with the nationalistic movement. And it like quoted this nationalistic leader who was basically being like, you went from a healthy Navalny to a smoking Navalny. I don't know if that's like a Russian phrase, but he was basically using it to be like, you built up your base with this like group of nationalists. And the fact that you're now switching to like these more liberal minded, like maybe more like educated elite is a sign that you've foregone some of your morals. So that was the one article. In other articles, even the ones that I told you, like via text, the New York Times was almost like heralding him as like the second coming of Russian politics. They would like allude to it. They'd be like, he used to say nationalist things, but they wouldn't go into detail about it. And they wouldn't describe really how it affects his politics today. And th this kind of goes back to what you were talking about in the last episode where you're saying that Americans often see Russians as like two polarized group. There's like the one that's like the youth rebellion trying to fight for democracy in Russia and then there's like the Putin patsy and the New York Times seems to paint Navalny as like the leader of this pro-democratic youth rebellion but the problem is that the like nationalistic part doesn't fit into that image and so I wonder if they sort of avoid talking about it because they just like don't understand how to represent him as like sort of this complex political figure and rather just like talking about him as this person who's able to galvanize the youth into like being anti-Putin. Right, right. And like just how nice that some alternative to Putin has appeared. I mean, honestly, I understand that perspective a lot. And it, it's true that like, as I said, he has this, he has these documentary videos that are really well produced that are enjoyable to watch. They're high quality um, he has a like sense of humor with the rubber ducky thing. He is appealing in many ways. He uses, you know, like emojis in his videos and stuff. Like he's definitely appealing in, yeah. to, to a younger crowd for sure. And, and even personally, I like have struggled with this seeming sort of contradiction where I watched that movie about Medvedev and yeah, of course I want to be like, hell yeah, Navalny, good job. Like, you put a lot of work into this. This is really important stuff. On the other hand, I'm just like, yeah, but what about all that stuff you said before? <laughs> and, like, that was very borderline racist. And I, No, no, I don't think we should call it borderline racist. It just is racist. Okay, that was racist and nationalistic. It's also very noticeable that people don't talk about that part of his activity political activity right now also so right now the focus is in the media is uh is on his his foundation against corruption or whatever right and, and even if he does still like harbor nationalistic sentiments he's not as public about them like i couldn't find anything that he's like still talking yeah, about probably he is today. really cultivating this more liberal younger group and he's like okay well nationalists not nationalists we can definitely all get behind the fact that like owning a billion mansion all over the world while people receive literally shit money for their pensions is bad and that's something that galvanizes cross generations for sure 
I think that you should like map out what the Summarize, different yeah. different views of him are. Specifically, one of the sentiments I came across in English articles with quotes from like Russian figures is that a lot of people are supporting him out of desperation, which I think is something you kind of mentioned before. But yeah, maybe just like sure. sum- summarize how the population is separated. Okay, so Channel One News is the first source I'll cover, which I'm going to use to kind of cover all state-sponsored. It's a state-sponsored news channel, and okay. let's call that the representative of state-sponsored news. To put it shortly, they're for sure anti-Navalny, but they do it in a way that they have a sort of tactic where they are undermining his legitimacy in a way. Like, So Navalny, of course, runs on this very pro-Russian people platform, right? Like, we the people are going to take back our taxes like Robin Hood whatever just a million robin hoods <laughs> you you get what i mean yeah, yeah, yeah and like one example is um an article covering the march 26 protests was like yep there were these anti-corruption meetings or what they're called meetings but whatever protests some of them were allowed some of them were officially sanctioned others were not and the one in moscow particularly was not so right. they introduce it like that Pretty much all these times that there have been protests that were like organized or or led by Navalny's actions in some way, he's present at them and he's gotten like arrested and the penalty for being at a protest that is not sanctioned by the government is 15 days in jail. I didn't know it was 15 days, but yeah, people generally get arrested. In Moscow, it was not sanctioned and 700 people were arrested. So first of all, we're... I'm on Channel One News. They do not. They do not say how many people are arrested. Seven hundred people is a lot. They don't. They, they don't say no, that number. No, okay. that number I just know from a different newspaper. Okay. This this is the picture that they paint. Yes, anti-corruption meetings, but rallies. They were not really? sanctioned rallies. Sorry, rallies. <laughs> protests. Protests. Rally. I think. It's... Yes, anti-corruption. Yes, anti-corruption protests. But the ones that were not sanctioned, like in Moscow, that. Ladies and gentlemen, it's called provocation. Police were behaving themselves totally decently, professionally, correctly. But, you know, if you're just going to break the law and protest when you're not allowed to and it's not sanctioned. So break the law and protest when it's not sanctioned means just like be on the street. Okay. Yeah, like people will be arrested and arrests were made. That's kind of the cover. But this provocation is really important. People, by doing what they did... And this is all Navalny's fault, of course. They were provoking these poor professional police officers who were just trying to do their job. Okay. okay? okay. Keep order. And the tactic in not reporting how many people were arrested is to not indicate how popular the protests were, right? Yeah. I'm not going to say that nowhere did they report the number. I'm not sure about that. But it wasn't mentioned prominently, nor was the number of people present. And these were really, really, really popular protests there were a lot there were thousands of people not in every city as i said it was 99 cities i'm pretty sure and some there were only like 100 people Uh, but in moscow there was a shit ton of people so the so that's the position of the state media it's like look this guy's just trying to cause trouble oh and wait this is the best part and so it's not just about provoking the police to arrest people. They definitely, their position was definitely that any arrests that were made were provoked, right? Okay. But why? They explicitly stated the reason for the provocation was to create some good 
images for Western media outlets, some anti-Russian government propaganda. That was the goal. So this is according to the... The, the goal of the entire protest or of, get, or of provoking at the protest and getting... Provoking at the protest okay. and probably... And the protest in general. But basically the position was, look, this guy Navalny wants to cause trouble. He wants to show the West that there's violence and terrible things happening in Russia and the police are corrupt. So he made it happen. He basically provoked a situation where the police were forced by their professional duty to arrest these people and people took pictures of it. And then the West, the West thinks that there's chaos. Right. Okay. 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 Yeah. So the reality and how, how it was reported in one of the like independent newspapers. What's that um, newspaper called? Medusa. Medusa. Medusa's position is pretty neutral, I would say. They had like a live feed going on, like tweet length text that they published. And then later they published a article with all of those little texts together okay. that they had published during the time of the protest. In the beginning, they just say like, Moscow, 700 people arrested, like this many thousand in this city. They just sort of like list facts. They also showed a number of videos. And one thing that from the videos that they show that's very clear is that the police, of course, were not being super professional and <laughs> well-behaved. Basically how it went down was just, you know, police going in, grabbing someone and sometimes violently arresting them, hitting them, multiple policemen dragging men and women, you know, that kind of thing. Like police getting pissed and starting to like curse at people, yell at them. The But the biggest thing that Medusa points out is 26 protests featured an unprecedented number of school children, like oh. straight up kids. Wait, like and like ten year olds, like that kind no, of school child? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, ten year olds included, but I mean like under eighteen people. Okay, like probably we're looking at high school as the main audience there, and a lot of underage kids were arrested, and that was a problem. There was definitely more, I think, outrage around that than if they had been fully legal adults. Okay. One of the viral videos that came out of those protests was a actual 10-year-old, I'm pretty sure, giving a speech in... I, I saw part of that, but there weren't any subtitles. Oh, okay. I can't... Do you remember the city? It was not Moscow. It was somewhere east. He, he just gives this inspiring speech about, like, this is not about Navalny. This is not about Putin. Like, not about specific figureheads. This is about us as people having a say in our government and having a say in in what happens to us and how things are run in our country. Um, and he, he was very articulate. I, it was kind of amazing. But yeah, so that youth aspect is definitely a really important thing. And the fact that like a lot of people were not only arrested, but, you know, like beaten, like, you right. know, in that police way they love to do <laughs> yeah it for sure looked really bad and it was bad okay so so let's review so far we have two groups we have like the state-sponsored media group which is basically saying like oh Navalny's just like a shill for like a western agenda where he wants to make Russia look chaotic and bad and then we have and this is specifically in response to the protest but we can probably expand that to apply to Navalny as a whole mm -hmm. and then we have like the child at the protest who's saying like this isn't 
about Navalny. Like he's the central character that we're like using to rally around, but we're less concerned with him as an actual figure that we want to elect and more just with our own rights as people. So we have those two groups. Um, Do you have like a sense of, I mean, maybe there are more than three groups, but I feel like the obvious one we're missing now is people that are like actively pro Navalny. There are definitely people who are actively pro Navalny, but people that I'm close with and know their position is that they are not a hundred percent comfortable with Navalny, but they would vote for him if he actually is able to run. He is the only alternative, and it's sort of that thing, like, we don't really have a choice, but something needs to change. So so what things about him make them feel wary about actually supporting him? Well, I think it's different for different people. I think for some people that nationalistic past is a problem, but for others, and this is going to be an introduction to the other really ridiculous and kind of typical image of of Navalny that exists, another parallel one, is Navalny the Kremlin agent. Dun, da, da. Oh. And yeah, and right, right, so right, right. so I would say some people that I know, it's not necessarily that they straight up believe this conspiracy that Navalny's a Kremlin agent, but they don't necessarily trust him. And this is an interesting thing psychologically. The reason Wait, wait are you gonna explain the argument for why he could be a Kremlin agent. Yeah, I can explain that. Okay. So when I said that the day of the protest, I was talking to my friend and she said she didn't go to the protests on the 26th of March. One of the, her reasons, one of her arguments why she didn't go was this like feeling of mistrust or something for Navalny, though like we were kind of arguing about it because I said, well, why don't you just go because a lot of people are going to show that they're not necessarily pro-Navalny, but anti-Putin or anti-status quo, right? Right. So, yeah, we just kind of had a little back and forth about it. But it was an interesting perspective because she hinted to this Kremlin agent image. And her argument was the following. Why is he walking around? Why is he Yeah, free? okay. I came across that in a lot of English articles also. Yeah, and that's a really interesting, like, main piece of evidence for people, not just her, but I've seen that also, like, a bunch. The evidence that he might be a Kremlin agent is that he's free. He's <laughs> like, not dead. Yeah, yeah, he's not dead. I mean, in the in the intro to one of the Gessen articles, she lists a bunch of Putin opposition people who are dead or in jail or, right. you know... Exiled. Yeah, in no way are they walking around Moscow. Actually, that article of hers, it's worth reading, is specifically about this strange form of freedom that he has or whatever, or like about the question of why is Navalny still free and what's going on and what is so special about him. But she doesn't really entertain this Kremlin agent theory at all. She's she's pretty... Does she provide a, a different theory for why this is the case, or is she not really addressing it? Not really. She says, like, either he's too smart or too dangerous. She has some little, like, listing of adjectives in the beginning. But then she goes in to explain, like, the quite difficult situation he's in. So the quite difficult situation that he's in is a few things. So he has these charges against him, right, for embezzlement that are, according to Gessen and others, are totally made up. He has these charges and he was convicted of them. We should be clear about that. But there's still some pending, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Because the the important thing to note is that given the situation he's in legally, like I don't really know, I don't know the details, he is not allowed to run for president. He's claiming that he is legally 
allowed to run because he's saying that the Constitution states that a person can't run for public office if they are in prison. And he's saying, well, I'm not in prison, therefore I can run. Yes. And one of Navalny's tactics as a lawyer is to really take the Russian law kind of literally, like... Like, basically, it's, it's a funny thing. Gessen points this out in the same article. She says, rather than pointing out that, like, hey, I've been convicted wrongly, uh, the Russian government made up these charges against me to, like, smear my reputation and to make it impossible for me to run for president. He's like, okay, I'll follow the law. You're going to do this. I'm just going to, like, continue to follow the law as though the rule of law actually exists. Like, right. I'm just going to pretend it exists. So things like that, saying, like, well, I'm not in jail, so... What's the, what's the problem? <laughs> and like he even, okay, there's a really funny anecdote where he, um, at some point he was like under house arrest. He just, or like after like one day, he just left his house and just pretended that he wasn't under house arrest because for some similar reason, like there's some reading of the law that was like made it so that he wasn't actually under house arrest, some way to read it. So he was just walking around. He just left his house as though he was not breaking the law, like totally innocent. He went to his office, just like a normal day. And he said like, you know, he had like two guards who had been guarding him at his house and they just didn't even know what to do in this situation because no one had ever done it. So they just followed him to his office and just sat with him all day. And he said that went on for like multiple days in a row. Every day the guards would just go and stay at his office and be like, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> And like, I guess the the other part of that being that like whatever orders from on high they would receive were like delayed. So there was a period of time where they were just like they just had no precedent. They just didn't know what what how they were supposed to react. In in that anecdote, I'm picturing like the guards to just be these two like sort of bumbling doofuses who are like, all right, I guess we'll follow him to work, and they (laughs) don't really understand the situation. Yeah, we go here now. We're like, we're going off on this tangent and we're like not going back to the main thing. I think this is the main thing. This is all about Navalny's like situation and image. No, no, no. But we, we, there's like, first we were like, okay, we want to address like the different groups of people. And we were going to go into the one where it's like, who are the Navalny supporters? And then that went on to like, okay, why is your friend skeptical of him? Kremlin agent. Image. Kremlin agent. Yeah, I understand that Kremlin agent. But then the question was posed, like, why is he walking around? That's like the evidence for him being a Kremlin agent. But there's like two aspects of that. It's like, okay, he's a Kremlin agent, or he's being used by the Kremlin to have this like character that symbolizes Russian democracy is a thing to the West. Right. And I, which is like the the other argument, the other like explanation for why he's walking around. Yes. And I actually think that that's probably the closest to the truth. What, what I'm trying to explain here is that he's not actually just walking around. He's, he's playing a certain game that makes it very much look like he's free or whatever. But like, let's just like look at some some things here first of all he has charges against him from the russian government he technically will not be running for president but he keeps saying that he is again because he keeps pretending the rule of law exists number two very important his brother is in jail there's this definitely a tactic his brother is basically being held hostage in jail um his brother is was in extremely horrible conditions in in solitary confinement and he was 
made to know about that. That's a type of pressure. Like that's a that's a form of of whatever threatening him. Right. right, right. Um. So it's not just like the Kremlin's letting him waltz around. Like he's definitely suffering. He did not have a foreign passport. Wasn't able to leave the country based on those charges. Also, that was a whole conflict that has just now been resolved because of the green thing and his the green material in his eye. <laughs> and he had to go to the hospital. And he wanted to go to a hospital outside of Russia. And he eventually, he got a passport, but then he was denied access to leave, or rather denied the right to leave the country. Right. And then I'm not sure how that's been decided. Did he go? I, I they, yeah, I think they granted him access. But okay. So, but the, but the argument, I mean? like, yes, I agree. He's, he's not just like waltzing around on a spring day whistling to himself. Like he's definitely but, being harassed by the government for sure. Okay, at one okay. point he said, like, they there is almost nothing more they can take from me of course that's a dangerous statement because he has a wife and kids as far as i understand he lives pretty humbly i think that's what he was saying he made a joke kind of about like well they can come and take my playstation but that would be sad i really (laughs) wanted to finish that game or something like that like he always has this sort of dry sense of humor about it the truth is i think he is in a really shit situation now his eye doesn't even work okay so yes but i think the the like sort of consistent argument against all that is like those forms of harassment though bad are not on par with things that have happened to opposition leaders in the past specifically i'm forgetting that guy's name boris what the guy who was like shot in front of nemsov nemsov was like killed in front of the kremlin assassinated Khodorovsky, who is exiled in switzerland or sweden is that right yeah also on like bullshit charges also yep. on bullshit charges and and maybe the Khodorovsky case is like oh he could have stayed in russia but he just like didn't want to deal with the bullshit anymore and navalny has a higher tolerance for it but if Navalny truly poses a threat to the Kremlin, which I think the argument could be made that he does because he's able to like lead use emojis, use emojis and lead these protests that have like historically high turnout that it would be in the Kremlin's best interest just to kill him. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You could make that argument for sure. Yeah. I think, yeah, let's break down the two theories that you already articulated as being quite similar but importantly different which are that reason for him being alive or in the country alive and in the country are either kremlin agent straight up or he's genuinely doing this anti-government stuff he's genuinely researching all this corruption and, and presenting it but the kremlin's allowing it because they want there to be an image to other countries that people like him exist and that, yeah, democracy exists or something. Democracy exists. It goes back to the, like, hyper-normalization stuff and, I'm forgetting his name, but the man who's, like, in charge of propaganda in Russia was for a long time and that, like, he hired anti-Putin protesters and, like, organized anti-Putin rallies. I don't know what the intention was there, but like a combination of showing the West that democracy exists and also confusing the Russian people to an extent where they're not able to identify what is real and what is not. And so like it doesn't it doesn't seem like inconceivable to inconceivable to me or unreasonable to me that there would be like a Russian contingent who thinks of him as a Kremlin agent like that doesn't seem so crazy. Oh, not at all, because exactly because this guy, what's his name? Sir Kov, I feel like. Vladislav Serkov, okay. that guy who, who's, yeah, who's been working for Putin and through the 90s, 
as far as I understand. He organized oppositional movements and stuff. His idea was of this sort of like total control. I even need to be able to, I need to be able to engineer the, the opposition. Like I need to tell the opposition what they're going to say so that I can figure out how best to react to them. It makes sense that people who have lived under that type of psychological social engineering that, that this guy led, Sarkov led for many years, yeah, of course it makes sense that conspiracy theories are going to be, like, really easily believable because, again, like, who the fuck knows? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he is the Kremlin agent, for God's sake. Honestly, I personally feel like I lean most towards the, the, the second theory about the fact that, like, he's alive and walking around because the Kremlin's, like, using that for something. One thing I also wanted to point out about this, like, weird relationship with the government and Navalny that my friend pointed out was, um, why Medvedev? They don't say his name? Oh. Why Medvedev? Yeah. No, like, like, we should, he, we should also talk about that other thing, though. Okay. Be, because Medvedev, like, long ago was dismissed as, like, a non-player, basically, right? Yes, exactly. Like everyone knows, everyone who's, like, you know, yeah, everyone knows Medvedev's kind of a clown. And within the government, it's apparently, it's like pretty well known that he's not going to be anything to the next election. Like, his career is, no, nobody cares about him. His career is pretty much over. Like, think about it from that perspective, right? Listen to this. Putin doesn't want okay. Medvedev around anymore. He decides that it's a good idea to rally the people around Medvedev corruption so that it looks like the people decided that he's not going to be in power anymore. Easy. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that is. Like, that Navalny is totally reasonable to me. Yeah, and Navalny points out at the end of the at the end of the Medvedev movie, he of course points out that like you know Putin also has a million houses and like a secret kingdom or whatever. You know, this isn't only Medvedev. Yeah, he points that out. But the movie is about Medvedev. The whole thing is the duck thing is the whole meme. Why him? Okay, I mean, I I feel like I can come up with like a vaguely good argument for why him. The implication being like why Medvedev and not Putin, who is like obviously the target of or someone else act, actual political change. You can argue that Navalny is first and foremost, as I've said again, again, first and foremost focused on corruption and whether or not Medvedev has an actual role in the political apparatus of Russia is not important because he has a title and his wealth probably comes primarily from corruption practices under the title of prime minister, right? That's like a fair. Mm -hmm. So you can use Medvedev as a symbol because he's extremely well known. He has a position of power, whether or not it is in actuality, the title gives him power. And he's participating in these, these behaviors that presumably a lot of these higher up politicians are. I think the argument to not do it against Putin is that Putin, as we know, still has a very high approval rating. And I would assume if Naval, like assuming Navalny is not a, a Kremlin patsy, like he probably has fear around attacking Putin specifically, right? Like, like that seems dangerous. And if he knows the relationship between Medvedev and Putin is like not particularly strong, he can capitalize on the fact that like Russian government infighting is like a big enough problem that he can release this documentary on Medvedev and have like very little personal repercussions. Yeah, no, I, I totally see that counter argument. And that's, yeah, that's what I would say too. It's this, it is this weird thing where like, 
any situation has like at least two explanations. One which feels like more of a conspiracy theory about the like Russian propaganda system and one that is like the explanation of like a a rosy-eyed liberal westerner person and it seems really hard to understand or to ever know which is which right or to know to what extent one of them is more true so one interesting detail is that there's that medvedev and in general the mainstream media the powers that be did not like react to the video at all 20 million views no reaction medvedev did react to it actually but it took him like weeks i think and i think all he said was like that's preposterous oh yeah yeah make any more comments past that there's not like much discussion about this but i just want to note the fact that the kremlin does not use navalny's name ever even when they're asked about him they'll say like he and in some articles i read it was like putin will just say mister (laughs) which like doesn't make sense to me in english but maybe that's like a common way to refer to a man in russian mr what that's it just mister (laughs) sounds like some bullshit but wait you don't mean so you don't mean state media you mean literally like the members of the government right the members of of putin's administration and and there's in a lot of in a few of the articles i read there was an allusion to the fact that like there is a this like an explicit ban on using navalny's name and it was like putin's like chief spokesperson or whatever i'm forgetting the names but like when he was asked about that ban he denied that there was one without using navalny's name the entire time Wow, I didn't know about that. It's really funny because I wanted to just Google Putin doesn't say Navalny's name in Russian. And like when you say, I started typing like Putin doesn't, but it also the construction is the same as Putin is not. And the first thing I did Google is Putin is not real. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wait, Putin doesn't say Navalny's name. Hold on. I mean, I believe I love, what you're saying. I just I would but. love to watch a video of us, like a splice together video of all the times Putin didn't say Navalny's name. <laughs> <laughs> he should have. But so far, someone just asked him about like Navalny and corruption, and he so far hasn't said his name. And he said something like, "People who fight against corruption need to have super clean records themselves." So he's about to like smear. Yeah. Navalny yeah. So. That is an interesting... What is that? Is that like how we didn't want to say Trump's name? Yes. Well, <laughs> in that, like, your argument for not saying Trump's name, name was that it gives him power in some way. But I think with Trump, it was like, we more almost didn't want to say his name because I, this is my argument. It, like, keeps him from solidifying into a real, like, character in your brain if you don't have a name for it. And so it could just be, like, a bunch of different, like, Trump stories and you don't actually have to think about him as a person if you don't say his name. With the Navalny thing, I think it's it's less about that and more about just, like, completely ignoring him as a viable political opponent. Like, he's right. he's Again, so yeah. under the radar for us that we don't even know, like, who that is or to talk about him in any way. Yeah, and that's definitely part of the campaign to discredit him in general, like what I was saying about the reaction to the protests on the state channel. I feel like we've discussed like a lot already. Are there any other typical reactions to Navalny? Because right now we have like 
pro-Putin response, like just straight up like for Navalny. The third one is like using him as a as a like rallying guide. The fourth is he's a government agent with like a side note that like, well, okay, maybe he's not a, a government agent, but like the government is using him for their own purposes. Oh, I don't feel like that's a side I mean, note. I feel like that... it's a separate note, but yeah. Okay, but both those together answer the question, why is he walking around? Yeah, no, I think that those images that you just listed are the extent of like the most popular images. The one I know the least about is people who are straight up supporting him. I read a few articles about people who supported him during the mayoral election in in Moscow. um, And it was like a lot of really idealistic college age or even high school students who were just like canvassing for him all the time and like think he's so great, et cetera, et cetera, which to me just feel like, I just assume that somebody at that age has like a pretty simplistic understanding of politics, but maybe that's not fair. I don't know. Yeah, that also sort of works with the demographic, the very young demographics of the most recent protests this year. Maybe that is like the core of his fan base. I'm not sure. But yeah, definitely he has supporters. Everyone I know says they would support him, but with this kind of like almost begrudging, like, well, yeah, like there's no one else. Oh, I guess this is also about poop. I did want to say, I I was meaning to tell you that in lieu of having, wait, in lieu means an absence, right? No, it means instead of. Instead. That also works. Because I don't have one of those like squatty potty things that you use or whatever. Yeah. I've taken to straight up squatting on my toilet. <laughs> so basically Wait, I, I thought squat. I thought you were you thought you were using a bucket. <laughs> I love being reminded of that. Oh my god, that's very true. In fact I was using a bucket to prop up my legs so that I could be in the proper pooping position, but I've now moved apartments and no such bucket exists in my bathroom. So oh, right, right. I, so you're just like full on gremlin. I've taken to yeah, slob squat, gremlin squat, whatever you want to call it. I've taken to perching atop the toilet. <laughs> slob squatty on my toilet. Fun. That's yeah, I can I, I understand that. I sometimes have I sometimes have had that impulse when I don't have the squatty potty with me. Also, there's a bidet. Oh, one of those, oh like, nice. Um, not in the toilet itself. It's one of those like hose ones that's on the side. Okay. So it's okay. like you just grab the handle and like adjust the temperature basically. And you, it's nice because you can like decide where it goes rather than having to like aim your butt over some kind of like spout inside the toilet. Yeah. So I hear those. Although well. those spouts are pretty accurate. Yeah. yeah. And I, I used one once and it was great. Where? Uh, at a Japanese restaurant. Oh, I want to try. That's the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on social media at She's in Russia, both on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe and give us some stars on iTunes. See you guys next week. Turning left or right, I know we're alright, I'm gonna go tonight.